This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. I'm going to pick up where I left off, go through a couple more points, and then we're going to just filter right into our third session. Um, So I'm just going to go ahead and bridge that because I want to really get this content out to you. Um, And by the way, I will give an email address uh, where I can um, email you these things or try to put them on the GYC website so you guys can have these for download. So I'll I'll, I'll work around with that with uh, Brandon to see what we can do. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the blessing that it is to freely be able to study the word of God. There are countries in this world where things such as this must be done underground, in secret, but we can freely and openly praise the Lord, study his word, and give invitations to accept Christ. Father, this time is not about a man. It's not about information. It's about learning of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that his name would be uplifted, that Jesus would be seen, and that you would not only speak through this man, but that you would speak to him. For your name's sake is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're picking up with some practical things, a document to form um, in terms of dealing with neglect and being intentional in your life. Um, In terms of dealing with these specific areas. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and just those of you who are joining us late, um, this is a document that I drafted up for my own personal life um, because I know I struggle with the very same things that most of you struggle with. And so I started off with personal life and ministry life. You may want to add your work life to this document and say, these are some specific areas that I'm failing in my work. So for those of you who are taking notes, I just want to briefly cover these. I talked about devotional life. We talked about the importance of reading. Um, I talked about family and friends, uh, contacting individuals, exercise, prayer, um, and uh, this is another one. I want to emphasize that you cease to neglect. It says here, through this whole experience, it has definitely become much more apparent the power and thus the importance of prayer. It truly can move the arm of omnipotence. And here are my commitments below. One, to study prayer and its science regularly. So I made a commitment that I want to get some books on prayer. One book I can recommend to you is a book on, by E.M. Bounds, and it's basically a book on prayer. E.M. Bounds. E as in Echo, M as in Micah, Bounds as in No Limitations. E.M. Bounds is a great book. Also, one of my favorite chapters in the book Steps to Christ, The Privilege of Prayer. The principles in there are rich. I just need you to know. <laughs> so... If you want to really dive into the science of prayer and its importance, those two books are really helpful, really um, powerfully impacted my spiritual life. Also, I I started wanting to institute a midday prayer time for myself. This is just to bow before God in thanksgiving and praise and also affording an opportunity to seek counsel from God. Sometimes our day we prayed, we had our devotions, but sometimes your day can start off really hard. You've taken a lot of spiritual hits early on in the day. As a result of that, I saw, at least from my experience, that it's good for me to have some time in the middle of the day 
even if it's 15, 20 minutes, just to thank the Lord for what's been happening, thank him for who he is, thank him for the friends, the love, the support that I have in my life, my church family, thank him for what he's been doing in my life throughout that day, and then begin to seek specific counsel from him. For the rest of this day, Lord, I have some meetings that I really don't know what to say. And by having this document, this is something that I'm planning on printing out. It's going to be on my wall in my room so I can constantly be reminded and then reevaluate it as I can measure my progress. How am I doing in these things that I don't want to neglect? One thing I'm going to add to this that's not in this document is maybe one statement from the spirit of prophecy to show the importance of this area of what I don't want to neglect anymore. Um, this is a commitment I made about my relationship with my girlfriend. And uh, I said it's also imperative that I be intentional about spending time and energy, letting her name's Candace, know that she's loved and on my mind. This is not always easy to plan, but certain commitments are in order. So we get together and we pray at 5.30 in the morning, at least three times a week. Also, taking time each week, you know, take a walk, grab a bite to eat or something. Guys, we really need to work on this kind of stuff. Um, and going, accompanying her on like on a ministry outing or something. Um, also, gifts and acts of service on busy days. You know, sometimes my girlfriend can get really busy. Those are good days to, you know, pick up a card, some flowers, stuff like that. Um, these are not natural to me, so <laughs> I have to, you know, and there's the hug and the holy kiss, you understand, so. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, discipleship chart. Now, I've asked this of my missionaries, and it'll be helpful for me to do the same, obviously, with the spirit of excellence. I've, I've had a working document, but I really want to dive into this thing. And so what this chart is, I have three commitments, develop a chart, design it, and I want to fill in call, commitment, and community. Now, there are five C's of discipleship that we teach in Stride, okay? The five C's are call, the call of God, commitment, community, the fourth C is competence, and the fifth C is commission. Now, in these three areas in the call, we develop things like a personal mission statement. And I don't mean that in the corporate sense of the word, but to deal with the fact, why do you exist, Sebastian? And by me having that phrase, which I pretty much memorized it now, but by having this mindset to say, Sebastian, you exist for this reason. No other reason for you to have breath today. And by you having a constant sense of this is why I exist. This is why God wakes me up in the morning. And by having that on a chart that's filtered and I say, okay, what has God called me to do? How do I know what he's asked me to do? And even from there, from the calling and what, he's got, what God has asked me to do, what I also go into is I deal with, okay, how do I know that I was called? And I take the evidences of that. I say, Sebastian, you know how you know you were called? Remember you prayed about this. What did God tell you in prayer? Notice how he provided all the things along the way. And by doing that and keeping track of those things, they keep me focused and always reminded of this is why you were called. This is something that's very important in your life, that you have this. Also, commitment. Where is my commitment with the Lord? Which is part of the reason why this document is important. And in community, how are my human relationships? Let me tell you something. If you drew two horizontal lines parallel to each other, and you said the top line is my relationship with God, and the bottom line is my relationship with people, 
and you say, these are the times where my relationships with people were a little bit off. Well, ironically, you'll probably notice that around that same time, your relationship with God was a little off too. There's a connection. And 1 John tells us that how can you love God whom you don't see if you don't love your brother who you do see? He is a liar. You don't love God. That's a very simple, easy statement to assess yourself. If I come to this person, I'm like, you know, I have no love for this person. You don't love God. You know why? Because Jesus is a person. Amen. And Ellen White says in Christ's object lessons, you can't come in touch with divinity without coming in touch with humanity. Very, very important to look at our sense of community. How am I doing in my love to my fellow men? And I told you yesterday in my seminar that Ellen White tells us that the most fatal deception the most fatal deception in the church is that people will think that they're going to heaven without having Christ-like love for fellow church members. Whew. Everybody in your church, even the people who gossip about you, even the people who malign your motives, you got to love them too. And recognizing the fact that we're not going to make it, and that's a fatal deception. So community is very important, something to focus on. Now, in your ministry life, now these are some specific things to my particular ministry. Um, in campus ministries and missionary training, I shared with you the midday service, um, example and investment, um, and writing. But this is two that I want to focus on. So in writing, young people, we need to write more. We need to write more. Now, obviously, this is going to be shaped by the fact that we need to read more as well. I realize that this is a talent that I really need to develop and use for the Lord. I enjoy it when the ideas are fresh in my mind from a study, a sermon, research, or reading that I recently engaged in. But the discipline of writing is what I'll need if I'm going to write a book one day. Thank you. Here are my commitments below. I started a blog. It's called Radical and Rational. It's at WordPress. So right after GYC... I'll be sharing that thing and posting on it consistently. <clears throat> and that's my way to continue to refine my ability to write and to make sure I put my ideas into writing. Very, very important. And so I have the aim of what this blog is going to be about. Present content that gets to the heart. It's radical of issues and yet addresses them intellectual with intellectual clarity. That's rational. And this could stem from apologetic thoughts, studies of Bible characters, book reviews. So I'll have things about the Christ-centered life on the blog, and I want to write about bird's-eye view and pictures of Jesus' life. For example, just to give you a little bit of insight, um, one of the posts that I'm going to be making is about Jesus and rest. Y says there's no one who is busier than Jesus. I don't care how busy you think you are, you weren't busier than Jesus. You know why? Because you can't heal people. Amen. If you walked out and people knew you could heal people, <laughs> you don't understand. The population of the earth is different today. So when you, when you think about busyness, and I look at the life of Christ, yet you find there's never a person who stole away so often for prayer. How did he maintain his spiritual life? And this is what I want to say. And this is going to be one of my posts. Things that Jesus never did in the Gospels. 
And one of the things that the Bible never says about Jesus is Jesus never ran. There's nowhere in the life of Jesus that says hurry. But you know, the way we live our lives, I got to get here. I got to get there. I got to get this. I'm running. I'm rushing. I'm speeding. I'm cutting people off in traffic. I'm angry that she got that parking spot. All of this stuff. But when you look at the life of Christ, you don't see hurry. It never says Jesus ran. Never. So in reflecting and saying, okay, Sebastian, you need to start conducting your life like Jesus' life. What is the hurry? I'm a speed demon. The Lord has, he's, he's been trying to deliver me. <laughs> and I have, you know, I have a, uh, a, a, um, a manual stick shift in Boston. You know, had to take that thing out of commission because I got it like four speeding tickets in like two months on ministry trips on top of that. <laughs> I'm going to visit this student. <laughs> Cop is like, where are you going? And I'm like, Lord, you know, this is bad stewardship. I'm wasting God's money. <laughs> so I need to retire this car. Just take the T, take the train. And it'll teach me not to hurry. You'll get there when you get there. But the reality of that is that's something that's important about living a Christ-centered life and a life that really matches with the life of Jesus. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Yes? Okay. Also, I want to write a book next year. So I want to write a book actually on two things. Um, one is on sexuality. We don't address that in our church at all. And I have a class that I teach on sexuality and relationships. So as a result of that, I'm like, I need to just go ahead and put this in writing. And maybe some young people would be interested in reading it. <laughs> So that's one book I want to write next year, and also I want to write a book about how to be evangelistic while you're working professionally. I did a seminar last year on that um, called Cubicles in Christ, and I just want to address the fact that people who are in school, high school students, college students, and even young professionals, how they can be evangelism. I'd like to call it evangelism for the rest of us, but that title is already taken. And so I want to dedicate Fridays before Sabbath that I don't have to preach as well as Mondays consistently to doing that. Now, teaching. Um, the last thing on my mind is lesson planning. I do a lot of teaching, and I realize I'm not really that great of a teacher. <laughs> and so Dr. Siebold, Randy Siebold, he's over at Weimar College, and, you know, this is like, that's where he got his PhD in. So I'm like, hey, you have to help me out. You know, I want to learn how to put together these lesson plans. And so teaching as something I want to improve in. So for you, it may not be teaching. For you, it may be giving Bible studies. It may be preaching. It may be evangelism. It may be uh, analyzing difficult passages in the Bible. Whatever that area is that you want to develop, place that as an intentional area and begin to focus on that. Buy books. And this is what I said, research and purchase books to aid in this. Contact this. My friend Michelle, um, she also has good ideas. She's getting her master's in education right now. Um, and also, I'm going to experiment with creative ways to test, engage, learning, and understanding. So I found some new presentation programs online that I'm going to play around with, a couple websites that kind of give you a form to develop that. This is where we need to be very practical and intentional. Is this making sense? Yes? Okay. Now, let's uh, go ahead, go back to presentation for a minute. And the second challenge to commitment, dealing with the cares of life, is unbelief. 
I don't have time to dive too much into this one, but I want to do one other one. Let's go to Hebrews 5. Hebrews chapter 5. When you're there, say amen. Hebrews chapter 5. Are you there? All right. Beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Therefore, I'm sorry, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses what? What's that next word? Exercised to discern both good and evil. Now I want you to notice that this warning that he's giving in the book of Hebrews, as a challenge to commitment. Why these Hebrew Christians are struggling with turning back to Christ is he says, one of the heart reasons as to why you are challenging your commitment is that you're not growing. You're not growing. You still have need that someone teaches you again. I would say after two GYCs, you should be ready to start doing your own teaching. No reason for that. Maybe even one GYC. And the reality is, is that because we are not growing, we're not gaining new victories in our spiritual lives. That's why we get discouraged. I read you the statement yesterday in the afternoon session. Because of our broken promises, we question our own sincerity. And whether God will actually accept us and use us. And you know I'm telling the truth. And I use the example. You get an invitation to speak, but you've been messing up that week spiritually. You're going, to reject the, you're going to reject the request. But I'm saying, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. It is a reminder to you that God doesn't use perfect people. Amen. Otherwise, all of us would be disqualified. And if you think because your devotional life was consistent, that made you worthy, then you definitely shouldn't speak. Amen. can never spend enough time. So in looking at this concept of, I need to be growing, I always need to be obtaining new heights in Christianity. Here's the reality. For some of us who have been raised in the church, or have come into the church some years ago, when you sit down and look at your Christian life, you need to take an annual examination. An annual examination. That's for your notes. Every year, I should sit down and ask myself, albeit on New Year's or albeit in December, am I a better Christian than I was last year? Am I? But if you start writing down, what are the sins that I'm struggling with? And the same things keep popping up. And you wonder why you're not so on fire as when you first came. 
Now let me tell you something. Two things are key to this. Number one is honesty with yourself. Number two is you need to be able to be vulnerable with other people. I can't emphasize this enough. The reason why many of us don't grow is because we want to do the growth by ourselves. Amen. Want everybody to look at us as if we are holy? I'll take care of the problems at home. They have a Native American proverb, warrior by day, a weeper at night. Oh, yeah, you can fight on the battlefield with your tomahawk and all this stuff. We're bold. Yes, we're army of youth. Then you go up to your hotel room struggling with the same things. And we think, you know what, Lord, just you and I can handle this. No, sir. When we get to the place, and I have a sermon on this called Let's Be Real. We want to come to church and act holy when everyone knows you're not. It's true. And even if you thought I didn't know, the Bible already told me. Jeremiah 17, 8, your heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Soon as I see you and you're human, you're desperately wicked. Amen. But at the same token, you have a desperate savior. And when I see you, I believe you're converted 100%. I trust you. I trust you. But understanding that tension that when people come to me, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. If I was able to compile in a book the things that people have said to me in counseling, people will be shocked. And I would say, these are all Adventists. I had a person come to me one time who was struggling with child abuse. She was 16. She was sexually abused by her grandfather and then was taught by her grandfather to sexually abuse her younger step-siblings. That's Adventist church. What do you tell a girl who's 16 who's struggling with not molesting her younger siblings? And where in the world can she go in the church to get help? Because for sure you're not going to come up in Sabbath school church, pray for me. You know why? Because we're so afraid how people will look at us when the announcement is over. Say amen. That's why many of us are not growing. We would rather look holy and burn in hell later on. You can look at me beat up, torn, tattered. Man, this guy is not perfect. He has all kind of weaknesses, but I will be on the streets of gold. It don't matter to me. However you saw me on earth is irrelevant. <laughs> amen. It is irrelevant, because when you get to heaven, <laughs> once you enter the pearly gates, <laughs> do you understand? <laughs> when, it, when I walk and I wake up and I see Abraham, I'm like, yes, right resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> and then it is a race to the throne of God. Who's going to get there first? Now, probably the antediluvians, because they were giants, so they have bigger legs. <laughs> but, but I'm going to ask my angel to fly me a little faster or something. But the point that I'm making on this is very, very critical. It's important that we have accountability people in our lives. Super, super important. I'm talking about people you can sit down with who can ask you the difficult questions. Did you go to the website? 
Did you look at the pornography or the magazine? Did you masturbate yesterday? What happened when you were with your girlfriend last night? And the reason why we need that is because we need someone who can look at us in the eye and tell you that is sin, it's wrong. We need to get on our knees and pray together. But then when you see the person on the street, they still smile, they still give you a hug, they still want to hang out, they still want to spend time together, and they still ask you to take responsibility in the church. That's what we need, because we didn't experience that at home. For many of us, mom, dad said, you need to be this way. Otherwise, you're not accepted. And as a result of that, when we come to that place, we say, Lord, I know I have issues, and God has led holy friendships into your life. And Ellen White says, I don't even have time to really get into this in specificity. She said, Jesus went to Mary and Martha's house for holy friendship. Did you know Jesus wanted friends? People, she says, he could come aside away from unbelief, suspicion, and constant interrogation where Jesus could just be himself. And the question is, when you come to Jesus in prayer, can he be himself? Are you understanding what I'm saying? Or when Jesus comes to your house, he finds a person who says, yeah, Jesus, you're a savior, you're a great savior. Hey, can I help you with this? No, 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 don't bring that up. We don't want to deal with the basements of our lives. The closets that are locked. The Pandora's box. That if you open this up, you're like, I'm not even ready to deal with the spectrum of emotions attached to this. But brothers and sisters, that's where we grow. That's where we grow. That's where we learn to say, even if you don't love me back, I can still love you. You know why? Because I found security in Christ. And in Christ-like friends. I don't need you to affirm me. When I know that, there are always going to be people, especially the Lord, who are always looking out for me. Why am I clinging to this thing? Who cares if someone takes your seat in the auditorium? Gladly give it up. The Holy Spirit can reach you in the last row as well as in the front. Amen. The issue is your heart. But we think, oh, if I sit right in front of Dr. Walsh, his words are not any more powerful in the front row than in the back row. I was watching it online. And I was impacted by the message. People are watching it around the world thousands of miles away. It is the Holy Spirit. So this importance of growth, and I want to share with you another practical document because we got to make this practical. So go ahead and go back to my Word documents. And this is what I call a spiritual education track, okay? Key for growth. Key for growth. Now, I want you to notice this. This is what I did, and I actually built this document around some personal counsel that um, I'd received from Randy Skeet. We were, talking to, we were having a conversation about something, and I was saying, hey, you know, how do I, you know, get, like, into certain things? And he said, look, what if you just developed, you know, a document where 
you know, you just created a spiritual education track. I'm like, man, that's a brilliant idea. So I just created this whole document and went from there. So now the first area that I have in the document is teachings of the church for further study. This is key for your growth. I hope you're writing these things down. So I looked at the teachings at the time. I can't remember when I created this document, maybe like four or five years ago. And I said, okay, here are, doc here are teachings of the church that I want to get a better understanding of. First one is Trinity. I was like, you know, I, I've encountered a few Muslims, and their issue is how can Jesus be God, and, you know, how can he tell my father knows, and all this other stuff. So I'm like, Lord, I need to really be able to cogently deal with these issues. So the Trinity, spiritual gifts. This stuff's always floating around our church. Do you know your spiritual gift? Etc. Etc. What does the Bible really teach about spiritual gifts? Messianic prophecies fulfilled in Christ. A lot of us are not familiar with how many prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. Important to study. I want to study final events, the great controversy, um, the Lord's Supper, um, stewardship and tithing. Where did the tithing system come from in our church? How did that even get created? So I wanted to dive into that more to understand it. Justification, sanctification, you hear these terms, what do they actually mean? And where do they come from in the Bible? Prayer, personal spirituality, which now I have a class on, and then the 144,000. Always stuff going around the church, and you're like, okay, I need to study these things for myself. So the first category in your spiritual education track is, what are the doctrines of the church that I don't fully understand or that I'm not capable of teaching? Effectively. Effectively. That's a one. The second thing is readings for study. These are books you need to read, but also plan on impacting your life. Is this big enough for you guys in the back? Okay. So we find readings for study. So first thing is obviously Spirit of Prophecy before any other books. So great controversy. I've read the book, I think, around seven or eight times now. I try to read it almost every year. Every time I read it, I'm always remembered why I love the book. That was the book that brought me into the church. And I'm like, man, I read about Wycliffe and John Wesley. Let me share a quick story with you how this book really impacted me. In the chapter on John Wesley, there was a scene where she's talking about John Wesley is preaching. And he's preaching on the plains of England. And she says that he saw these two men who were coming to him. And as they were walking to him, one had a big two by four in his hand. And the other one was ready to punch him in the face. He knew that they were coming to him. And she says that as he was walking and the men were approaching, he didn't try to avoid them. He just kept walking. He finished his sermon, and as he was walking that direction, he saw them coming, 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 and he says they both hit him at the same time. One hit him in the face, and the other swung the board right into his body. He said as soon as the man's fist hit his mouth, this is in the great controversy, blood immediately gushed out of his mouth. And she says, when he wrote in his journal, he said, it felt like someone had hit me with a straw. Felt nothing. Just kept walking to preach another day. When I read that, I'm like, Lord, what's wrong with me? People are like, Sebastian, I'll kill you. Okay. <laughs> Just keep preaching. Because when you read what God will do for men and women who say, look, I will do this even if, right? That was a sermon from last year. Doesn't matter. Go ahead, bring the two by four, bring the punches, bring the handcuffs. It's all right. I'm not afraid. 
that's a person that's dangerous to the kingdom of God. So every time I reread the great controversy, always inspired, every time. I can never get to the second half of the book. I have to, like, force myself. Another one is Ministry of Healing. Um, yeah, that book is just really powerful. It is a ministry of healing in and of itself for your own personal life. A Solemn Appeal. Years ago, this is a book written by Ellen White to young women. And I decided I wanted to read this, you know, inside information. And, <laughs> and also, I was like, you know, I want to see what the sister, what the prophet has to say to the women of the church. And I thought it would be good because I train female missionaries, as well as understanding as a young man who was single at the time, you know, how do you, what, is there any counsel from the other side? Do you understand what I mean by that? So as I read through the book, I was deeply impacted by the book. I was like, this book is serious. And after I read it, every time, you know, I would go with my uh, missionaries or call portering students to the ABC, they're like, yeah, Sebastian, do you have any recommendations for books? A solemn appeal. Read it. And every, now, this is without fail, to my knowledge, every young lady that has taken me at my word has said that the book has changed their view of what it means to be a godly woman. Hence the title, A Solemn Appeal. She talks about one thing that I'll share from that. She says that based upon how a woman carries herself, she says heaven can form a circle of purity around her life that certain kinds of men would never even make advances to her. Just by the way you carry yourself. And she says girls who prefer the company of men more than women, question mark. So when you read stuff like that, I'm like, okay, Lord, <laughs> I understand. And so young ladies, definitely encourage you. I read the book. It was powerful. Letters to young lovers. Don't wait to get into a relationship to read books on relationships. Amen. Some of us don't pick up Avenue's home till we're already struggling. I'm in love with him, Lord. <laughs> Am I infatuated? Okay, I read the chapter. I'm clean. You need to read the book ahead of time. Amen. Amen. You're not ready for parenting. You're not ready for marriage. No one. You don't get practice. So by the time you have your kid, too late. No turning back. <laughs> the kid is here. How am I going to raise this kid? Oh, let me read child guidance. Too late. Kid is already born. She says influences on the life begin in the womb. By the time you start dating someone and courting them, you're already impacting them spiritually. Already, either for heaven or for hell. And in Letters to Young Lovers, one of the most powerful quotes I read in that book is she says, the devil is always seeking to unite the interests of those who are completely unfit for one another. Because he knows that in no other capacity can he bring greater woe and pain into the human life than through relationships. And some of us just take it as a joke. She's cute. That's not enough. Demons are cute. <laughs> like, amen. <laughs> Come on. You know I'm telling the truth. There's some pretty girls, some pretty guys. You thought, oh, he's attractive. Then you found out, man, straight from hell. <laughs> so, hey, I just got to keep it real with you. <laughs> 
Education, one of my favorite books, All the Spirit of Prophecy. Powerful, powerful book. So anyway, I could go through this every single book. <laughs> Other authors I wanted to read, Daniel and Revelation Study Committee. It's called Darkom. This is in response to the Desmond Ford issue. And this whole fact, there's no heavenly sanctuary. You know, who is the, the little horn of Reve Daniel chapter 7, uh, Revelation 13, all this kind of stuff. Those are books that I wanted to read to familiarize myself. Another book I have is called Sanctuary 1844 and Our Pioneers. And it shows you how the sanctuary message came into the church. Deep Bible study. Uh, Christian Ethics. Uh, the Trinity is a book that I had. I was looking at from another author and investigating the investigative judgment. I have a Bible study because of that book called Jesus Was a Seven-Day Adventist. And I show from the Gospels that Jesus teaches and taught everything we teach. They're like, oh, yeah, what happens when you die? Let's see what Jesus says. Okay, yeah, what, what about judgment? Let's see what Jesus says. And as I go through it, I'm like, so basically, Jesus was a Seventh-day Adventist. People are like, oh, snap. <laughs> you know, it's time to join the church. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, also, you need to set some spiritual goals for yourself. A biblical lecture series. Each of you should make a, an intention in your mind to share a series of messages on a topic from the Bible. Should have been more amens than that. Amen. Some of you are like, this guy's lost his mind. <laughs> Not putting this in my notes. Um, a, the book of Revelation. I did a series earlier this year on the book of Revelation. Sanctuary imagery in the Gospel of John. I started noticing there's a lot of sanctuary imagery in the Gospel of John. So I want to do a series on that. End time events illustrated in the Gospel stories. I was noticing in the final scenes of Jesus' life, it actually parallels final events. I was like, man, this is crazy. And so I want to do a series on that. Evidence of God in creation. Already done that. Biblical sexuality. I've already done that as well. Books of the Bible that I like to study. This is very, very important. As you create an intentional list, this is how you can measure your growth. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now I come back and look at this thing that I made years ago, and I'm like, man, I've done actually all of this. My seminar was partially on Hebrews. Done that. At the time, I, I could not have taught on Hebrews. Habakkuk, that's my next one. Um, looked at Ruth, I've looked at Romans and Revelation. Now also, let's get to some more things beyond this. Because LNY says it's not always good for the mind to be only occupied with spiritual things. Okay? Now, keep that in context. Doesn't mean jump into the world. That's not what she's saying. Brother's like, yeah, I just need a worldly dose for, for no. <laughs> Contemporary issues, same-sex marriage. What does the Bible teach? So I want to study that. Uh, I also want to study abortion and euthanasia. Euthanasia is the whole idea of assisting people to kill themselves. Is that right? What is the Bible answer on that? Stem cell research. How do we deal with that biblically? War. How do you reconcile, you know, Joshua, David, all these wars in the Old Testament with the wars that we see today, but at the same time we see Jesus doesn't encourage those kind of things. And also, because of this whole inconvenient truth, the green movement, the environment. So what, what is supposed to be our position on this? Also, issues that have come up, women's ordination. 
you know, should women be ordained, et cetera, et cetera? What does the Bible actually teach on that? I'm sure we've heard a lot about that. Music, I've been developing that over the years and looking at what does the Bible actually talk about with music, reading books, researching for myself, and even analyzing my own taste in music and my own experience. And I found that as I continue to grow in my relationship with the Lord, certain songs that I loved, they start becoming inappropriate to me now. I'm like, it's not putting my mind in the right spiritual place. And it's no, I mean, it's an acapella song. Just can't deal with it. And it's interesting um, to notice that. So hopefully one of the next series I'll be doing is actually going to be on music. The nature of Christ. That's an issue that's come up theologically. Creation evolution and also chaplaincy. I was in the United States Marine Corps. How does that, how do we reconcile that? Because people in the military need to be reached. But what is the proper means? Is chaplaincy that proper means? Are there any things that deal with that in the Sunday law, et cetera, et cetera? All right, other books that I wanted to read just to familiarize myself. Now, let me just be mindful with something and go on the record. I don't read fiction. And this is even discouraged in the spirit of prophecy. I don't have time to deal with this in the Bible because that's a big issue that definitely plays into the great controversy. This obsession with fiction, it weakens your desire even for scripture. You start getting into the fantastic, oh, yeah, he had three heads and eyes. and No, you need to stick to reality. We, get it, we escape enough through entertainment. Amen. We need to start dealing with our actual lives and problems. So Freakonomics, I read that book. Um, I love books. One of my favorite books, actually. <laughs> and it's about how to read books, what books to read, essays, things like that. There's a book called Better by Atul Gawande. He is a, um, one of the chief surgeons at Mass General Hospital. Powerful book about moral and integrity lessons through medicine and the struggles that he's had. Uh, the Grand Weaver by Ravi Zacharias, Dreams of My Father, um, was uh, by Barack Obama. Einstein, his biography on the audacity of hope. Why We Can't Wait was Martin Luther King Jr.'s background to where the civil rights movement came from, how it started. Powerful, powerful book. Jesus Among Other Gods and A Knock at Midnight is a compilation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons that he had preached leading up to the civil rights movement. Powerful, powerful stuff. Um, articles that I wanted to write. I wrote an article on biblical economics, biblical sexuality, and the origins and effects of music is my next one. And then obviously books, on, books that I'm planning on writing. So what I'm going to do is um, go ahead and really quickly give you my email address so that can email this document out. So I'm just going to type it on here for everyone to see. So it's going to be sbraxton at gycweb.org. So that's my email address. Um, and basically, you can just email me. Be happy to send you the documents. Um, or I'll try to put them in a neutral place where everyone can download them. And that way, um, you can go and have access to these things and begin to build your own spiritual education track. Is this helpful? Okay. Very good. I'm glad. Now, let's dive into the end of our presentation. Let's see if I have this. Now, 
I'm going to use this marker board for a moment to kind of get us started. I know some of you may not be able to see, so I have the basic points right here on the screen, okay? But I'm kind of a marker board freak, so it just helps me to think better. Now, how do we tie this into balancing the cares of life? Now, for anyone who's ever studied economics, I don't think this is the right marker. It's not. <laughs> All right, they'll forgive me. <laughs> All right. Now, economics, I studied business in college, finance, uh, with a minor in entrepreneurship, but they tried to get me to switch my major to economics um, after my microeconomics class, but I told them absolutely not, not useful, and I disagreed with the fundamental philosophy. But there were some lessons that I saw that were very, very practical to us. Economics is a study about choice. Choices. And the reason why we have to study choice is because there's something called scarcity in the world. What that means is, is that you can't do everything. There's scarcity. For example, everyone can't have a, you know, 10,000 square foot mansion. Everyone can't have 25, 50 acres of land with ponies and horseback riding and all this kind of stuff. That's just not possible. So the issue is, how do we make choices when there's scarcity? How do we make choices when there's scarcity? And so economics is the study of that. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, don't worry about it. Thank you. So now, when we look at the concept of biblical economics, I want you to understand something. A biblical perspective of economics for a Christian, which means the study of choices, what do you do? You can't choose to do every ministry in the local church. Amen. Can't be the pastor and the Sabbath school teacher and the chorister, you know, and the elder and the deacon are offering this morning. And then you're walking around collecting the offering. I've seen churches like that. You can't do everything. So the question is, how do we decide to make choices? And so I'm going to talk about, first of all, the principle that these are four, four basic principles that I want to deal with. And then I'm going to take some questions. So I'm going to go through these very quickly. So you've got to follow them in terms of how we can balance our commitment with the cares of life. And based on the spiritual track that we talked about in personal revival document. First of all is purpose precedes existence. One of the fundamental issues that economics brings forward is the fact that the purpose of humanity is to maximize happiness. That's what they say. Happiness is maximized <laughs> by maximizing wealth, because if you have more wealth, then you have more power to obtain what you want. That's the fundamental belief of economics, as established by Adam Smith in his uh, first initial volume, The Wealth of Nations. Now, the question is, is that really true? The wealthier you are, the happier you are? That's not true. You know how that's not true? Statistically, suicide rates are higher amongst wealthier communities and even regions of the world. America, Europe, and Australia have the highest suicide rates in the world. Yet when I go to Africa, and this family is living literally in stick and straw, sleeping on dirt, 
washing in the creek that's just outside their house that goes down during famine and increases during rainy season, constantly surrounded by mosquitoes, a hospital is too far for any medical emergency. Never ever thought of committing suicide one time. So now I told you with the issue of the paradox of choice, I mentioned this, paradox of choice. We think that if we have more choices, more options, that we're going to be happier. It's not true. In fact, they have studies that have proven, studies that have proven that the more options you give someone, two things are true. One, the harder it is to choose, and two, the less satisfied they are when they make the choice. We can take something as simple as salad dressing. You're like, okay, Thousand Island, Italian, French, all these salad dressings. Do you know in certain grocery stores they have over 200 varieties? That's not including the, the you know, balsamic vinegar and all this other stuff. So when you go to the store, okay, honey, let's get some salad dressing. Shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves. What happens is, because we have so many different options, we actually call, go into what scientists call paralysis. It's hard to choose. We actually end up making no choice at all. And then, eventually, because we have to make a choice, we end up becoming less satisfied. Do you know why? Because when the salad dressing wasn't perfect, you know what we think about? I could have gotten that other salad dressing. Are you following me? And I told you on, on uh, yesterday afternoon, seems like it was like three days ago, <laughs> I told you on yesterday afternoon that we do the same thing in relationships. And this creates unrealistic expectations in our human relationships as well as in our divine relationships. Why? And then we, as soon as we give our lives to Jesus, we're like, man, it's going to be perfect. Then it's not. You become less satisfied. Because you're thinking, you know what? I could have just chose to do this. I didn't have to come to GYC. So in understanding the concept of purpose, is the purpose for me to maximize these things? I can logically argue that you always should choose Christ, always should make sure that these things are secondary. We all know that. The issue is the mindset that motivates us into these situations that kill our commitment. It always must stem from the divine perspective, which is always purpose. And the fact that purpose precedes existence. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26, quickly. When you're there, say Amen. Are you there? All right. Purpose precedes existence. Verse 26. Now, what does this say? And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay. Now, follow this. The image of God in that verse, did it come before man or after man? Before man. You know why? Because you have to make man in his image. The image can't come after he's created. Are you following? So the purpose for man is to reflect the image of God. 
This is the divine precedent of how he does things. I don't bring anything into existence unless I have a purpose for it. That means, let's deal with something practical. Gold. God created gold. Did he create it to be worn on your ear? If God wanted you to have gold in your body, he would have created you with gold in your skin. Amen. Therefore, he must have had a different purpose. Are you following me? Go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew in the 13th chapter. Are you there? All right, now, in Matthew chapter 13, I want you to notice something in this parable that Jesus tells um, about the tares and et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to spend too long on this because it wasn't actually in my notes. But I want you to notice in verse 36, Jesus says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came with him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sold them is who? The devil. Now I want you to pause for a second. Go back to verse 24. So we know the field is the world, the sower is Jesus, and the man who sold the tares is the devil. Now read the parable in this light. The kingdom of heaven is like unto Jesus who sows good people in the world. But while men slept, the devil came and sowed evil people among the good people, and then he went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the evil people. And so the servants, the angels of God came and asked Jesus, Sir, did you not sow good people in the world? From whence then does it have evil people? And he said unto them, The devil has done this. And the angel said unto him, Will thou then that, do you want us to go ahead and gather up the evil people? No, lest while you're gathering up the evil people, you also root up the good ones. Now I want you to follow this in your mind. Jesus says, I did not sow evil people in the world. When evil people come into the world, evil or whatever the case may be, it was not God's original purpose. And who is it that took away something that was not God's original purpose and put it into the world? The what? So the devil delights in taking what God had a purpose for one thing and to use it for something else. And so we can start classifying evil as, listen to the statement very carefully, as that which ought not to be. That which ought not to be. I never created the world for you to be having stuff in your nose. That's not what I created gold for. I didn't create these plants to be smoked. I didn't create these, these plants to be sniffed or to be injected into your bloodstream. 
I didn't create women for your sexual pleasure, and I didn't create men for your emotional needs. Now, I want you to think about these things, that we begin to objectify things, and we use them for purposes that they were not originally created for. Therefore, we are going into evil. Are you following what I'm saying? Think about all the things that you struggle with in your life. They're an abuse of something being used for a purpose it wasn't created for. So when you're talking about the cares of life, which we're talking about money, you got to provide for your house, you got to pay your bills, you got to take care of your children, you know, you have to manicure your lawn, you know, you got to take care of your online banking, pay your mortgage, your rent. All these different cares of life. The Bible acknowledges the fact that Christians should be the utmost in these areas. We're not allowed to be deficient because we're ready to go home to heaven. Well, you know, ain't nobody going to be here to collect my rent in two years. <laughs> what you going to do? No, sister. That's not Christ. He expects us to be responsible, but he says where the first principle of biblical economics is, Principles of balancing the cares of life. What was the original purpose? What was the original purpose? If you got money in your bank account, why did God give you money? So you could hoard it and show that your bank account has X amount of zeros? Absolutely not. Did God give you clothing to show off the shape and the curves of your body? Absolutely not. Did he give you food so that you could deal with your emotional depression and make yourself feel better by comfort food? No, he did not. Did he give me a mouth so that I could let this brother know a piece of my mind? No, he did not. Some of you guys are convicted. <laughs> Lord, help me to be in harmony with your purpose. <laughs> purpose precedes existence. This is so key. The second principle you see on the screen, managing and balancing your cares of life with the commitment. Never sacrifice what you want most for what you want now. I cannot overemphasize this. In your notes, I want you to write down three things that you want most in life. Go ahead and do that now. I want you to write down the top three things you want most in life. Now, as you write those things down, these are the top three things I want most. Now, another way of putting this is what three things do I want to ensure are done before I die? I hope one of those would be the character of Jesus. Now, ask yourself the question, where am I with these three things? And how much time have I devoted to them this week? Does anyone have one that they'd like to share? 
something they want most out of besides Christ likeness, which we all know. Yes. Win souls to Christ. Great. I want to win souls to Christ. Now, as he puts that on his list, this is what I want most out of life. Next to being like Jesus is to win souls for Christ. Now go over your schedule and ask yourself, how much time has I, have I devoted to winning souls? You know what you're doing? You're sacrificing what you want most for what you want now. So when you have commitments in life, the cares of life, yes, I have to do this, I have to do this, but here's the issue, brothers and sisters. What this principle says is, yes, I got to pay my rent, I got to do my homework, and I need to do those things. And we say, when that is done, then I'll do what I want most, but the problem is we never get there. That's the devil's plan. You're never going to make it to winning souls. Because in your mind, I got to pay the rent first, and then I'll win souls. What it should be is, how do I make sure I have time to win souls? First. Then, where does rent fit in? I know some people are looking at me like, I mean, I'm not going to have a place to live. No. We're talking about balancing. What you plan first is what you want most. I understand you want your rent paid, you want these things paid. I want my rent paid too. But is that what I want most? Yes or no? No. I don't want to sacrifice these other things so that when I'm dying in life, people say, you know, brothers and sisters, at his eulogy, he paid his rent faithfully. <laughs> Always on time. Is that all you want people to say at your grave? You determine what people think of when they hear your name. Based upon how you live your life. Never sacrifice what you want most for what you want now. That's why young girls lose their virginity. That's why young people get into crazy nonsense with drugs, the wrong crowd, spiritualism, and satanic promises of power and all this kind of stuff. You know, these Satan worshipers, I've talked to them. They start recruiting kids as young as six. You don't even know. In your elementary school, hey, come with us. They start recruiting very early. And we think kids are dumbed down. Oh, no, let's take them to cradle roll. When the Satanist gangs have them out there marking trash cans and all kind of crazy stuff with six-pointed stars sneaking out of the house. What we want most must be very key, very intentional, and I would encourage you to even write it down by having it. All right, last two quickly, and then I know I have to end. The second one is good is the enemy of best. It's biblical economics, choices. <laughs> Some of us do things like this. If I work an extra 10 hours next week, I'll get ahead on my rent. Is that a good thing? Yeah, that's a good thing. Is it the best thing? 
if you have 10 extra hours. Is it the best thing? You guys are, you guys are divided. How do you determine what's best? Priority? What else? Goals? Good. Anyone else? The sacrifice? Yes, the sacrifice you're making. So we call that opportunity cost. Now this is where I'm going with this. What is best? In Luke chapter 12, put this in your notes. Luke chapter 12. Make sure I give you the precise passage. Luke chapter 12. And put this passage in your notes just for a later reference. Uh, Verse 13 to 21. A man came to Jesus and said, Lord, can you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Jesus turned to the man and said, man, who made me a judge and a divider over you? Now, that sounds like a little harsh from the Lord. How are you just going to cut a man off and say, who made me a judge and a divider over you? Now, right after this, when he comes to this point, Jesus then goes and says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. What is Jesus really emphasizing? And this is what Ellen White puts it succinctly. For sake of time. She says, Jesus did not come in to the world regarding your earthly gain and to point people's minds to earthly things. He came to point their minds to heavenly things. Is it wrong for a brother to get cut out of his inheritance by his other brother? Absolutely wrong. Would it be good to help him? Yes, it would. But is it the best thing? No. Man's greatest need is not settle his financial disputes. Even when we go out and we say, you know, I want to be a medical doctor. I want to be a counselor, a social worker. If you help people heal physically and emotionally and they still don't know Jesus, they're just going to be healthier, burning people in hell. I'm serious. Now, am I saying that God can't use a kind smile and a helpful doctor? Absolutely, he can do that. But we have to be mindful of something, brothers and sisters. If you're going to be a doctor, what do you want most out of being a doctor? Is it just to show up at time, do your rotation, see your patients, and that's it? There has to be something more than this. And recognize, is it good to be an on-time doctor? It's good, but is it best? And as good is the enemy of best, we settle for something less than what we could have just because something is good. Well, hey, I mean, you know, people come, and I'm going to touch on an issue for some people, diet. Yeah, man, you know, it's not wrong to, you know, at least I'm vegetarian. You know, I'm still, I still, I need my cheese. Yeah, I'm going to touch on some stuff today. People are like, all right, it's time for me to go. Seminar's (laughs) over. You're not going to be lost because you eat cheese. Let's be clear about that. But you will be in a different place in your growth. And the reason is you can say, look, 
This is the temple of God. The question is, is it the best? You know, look, I'm going to put myself out there right now. I have this issue with Oreos, right? <laughs> Oreo cookies. And they're completely vegan. I'm like, yo, man, Oreos are vegan. Yeah, I'm a vegan, man. I can't eat that. But you're eating Oreos. Sebastian, it may be good that they don't have dairy. But it's not best. Amen. So the whole thing is, let's be real. Some people think because the stuff is vegan, it's healthy. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Oreos are not healthy for you. Let's just let's go on the record. Right now, they're not. Oh, and then you come to potluck. Oh, look at that pie. Oh, it's all vegan. Yeah, pure sugar is vegan as well. <laughs> just take it to the head. If... So why am I saying this? Good is the enemy of best. This is important in our choices and in how we deal with the cares of life. If you have extra time, don't go out and say, oh, I'm going to go work an extra 15, 20 hours. Problematic. Because then when you work those extra 10, 15 hours, oh, something else came up, never got to go on the evangelistic trip I wanted to go. And then you're 35, and you're looking back and saying, I didn't do the things that I wanted to do. And no one's going to say what you did was wrong. It was good. But the question is, was it best? Last principle, opportunity cost. This one's very simple. This one's very simple. <clears throat> Go to Matthew 16. Are you there? All right. I just realized the time. You guys are very kind. <laughs> then said Jesus, verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? Anything that costs Jesus is too expensive. This is a fundamental basic principle of balancing commitment. There are certain things I'm willing to compromise. I may have to spend more time managing my finances than I want to. I can make that spiritual and say, Lord, we're going to pray through these finances. And I want this to be excellent as an offering to you. And I may have to do that. But in terms of me giving up my relationship with Christ to manage my finances, it's too expensive. And for many of us, because of these principles and the absence of them and how we are making our decisions, our commitments get impacted. They start failing. We start sacrificing what we want most. We start deviating from purpose. We begin to start trading Jesus like Judas. 
and we say, what will you give me for him? And the devil says, oh, I'll give you a nice house. I'll give you a great job working on Sabbath. High pay, six-figure income. What will you give me in exchange for Jesus? I'm going to close with this story. My little sister, um, not my little sister, she's only a year younger than me, but she's just a lot shorter than me. <laughs> when we were growing up, she had a, a little, um, I don't know what you call it, like a jewelry box kind of thing. And my sister is very private. And as an older brother, you know how it is. You're torturing your younger sister, and we weren't a Christian family, so <laughs> it wasn't good. So I always try to break in my sister's room, see what's in her stuff. And, of course, she would freak out and threaten to end my life. <laughs> and I remember she had this box. And when you open it up, a little ballerina comes, and it kind of, like, you know, makes this music, whatever. And there's a little shelf, and there's stuff under. And I remember asking him, like, Paris, what's in the box? It's none of your business. I'm like, so if I wrestle you to the ground right now and then take the box, what will you do? She's like, I'll kill you. <laughs> you won't wrestle me to the ground. So, you know, I, I kind of deliberated in my brain, you know, can I actually take her right now? <laughs> and so I, I, I've always been a salesman. So I said, okay, so what if I gave you a million dollars? Would you give me the box? She said, no. I'm like, with a million dollars? You can buy a nicer box than this one. So I said, what about a billion dollars? She said, I wouldn't give it to you for a billion dollars. I'm like, why? She says, because the things that are in this box are very precious to me. More than money. You can't replace the things that are in this box with money. And I wondered in reflecting on that experience in the light of this seminar that ultimately this is what the heart of commitment to Christ is about. That Jesus is our box. And the reality is if we learn when relationships, when family, when fellow church members and friends, when the cares of life come and say, hey, how much for the box? You say, look, this one's not for sale. This one's not for sale. And I don't know if you've cherished Jesus. Because that's the question of our age, is what are you going to do with Jesus? Will you have him? Will you hold him? Will you cherish him? For better or for worse. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part till I die. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you want to renew a commitment today,
to say, Lord, till I die, I will have this man Jesus. I will hold this man Jesus. I will love and cherish this man. For better or for worse. In sickness and in health. For richer or for poorer. Till death. Till I die. If you want to make that decision today, I just want to invite you to stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we've gone through a lot of information. But this is really where we need to end. And that is recognizing the importance of cherishing Jesus. Lord, it is not an absence of information that we lack. But it's the absence of an understanding of the value of the one that we have chosen to love and to give our affections to. We have neglected you. We have failed to pay proper attention to him that is altogether lovely. And we pray, Lord, that like my sister, even more so, that you would help us to see the treasure that we have in our Lord, that we would cherish him. We've stood to make that decision, that commitment, an identity that we love our master, and we will serve him forever until we die or he comes to take us home. This is our prayer. We need your spirit to fulfill this commitment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or, if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it, and keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.